0: chosen to worship here with us. In recent weeks we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes examining the wisdom for life the preacher has to share. And in these weeks, the preacher has shared the vanity of all he sees under the sun, the meaningless of everything he sees in this life. Specifically, we've looked at his complaints about the problem of time. According to the preacher, time is cruel. Time is unpredictable. Time isn't fair. We've also seen the futility, according to the preacher, of trying to find meaning and trying to find eternal contentment in things like work and status and wealth. The preacher says you won't find contentment in those things. And today we're going to look at another recurring theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's what the preacher has to say about the fear of God. Now, the preacher is not the only person to talk about the fear of God. It is a huge theme in much of the Old Testament. Consider verses like Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Consider Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. According to both Proverbs and Psalms, this idea of fearing God is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you can't even begin to acquire knowledge or attain wisdom apart from that starting point of fearing God. According to that literature, that's where it all begins. But to be honest, Ecclesiastes and the preacher, they're a little bit different than the Psalms and the Proverbs. We've seen that so far. So the question is, what will the preacher have to say about this idea of fearing God? Would he agree with Psalms? Would he agree with Proverbs? Is there a right way or a wrong way to fear God? Really, is there any place for the fear of God at all, especially in light of what Christ has done for us? So with that, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 471. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you today. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do for us, all that you've done for us in the past, all that you do for us day in and day out that we so often take for granted All the things that you will do for us in the future. God, thank you that you are a God of angel armies, that you are by our side, that you stand beside us, that you defend us, that you protect us. God, thank you that you are a good shepherd who wields a rod and wields a staff. And God, sometimes you drag us back to where we need to be. Sometimes you lift us up when we're hurting. Sometimes you go out and seek us when we're lost. God, we're grateful for that. Thank you for your son, Jesus, the ultimate showing of your willingness to seek out and find lost people like us. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us, to live that sinless life, to die that sacrificial death. Not because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because he willingly gave up his life. And God, thank you that he rose. We love you. We praise you. We look forward to our own resurrection one day to be with you forever. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Starting in verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 3. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the verses leading up to this, verses 1 through 13. Those are the verses where the preacher talks about the importance of knowing the right time for things. That's the passage about a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. But in those verses, the preacher also seemed to complain that man is. Is incapable of understanding the right and wrong time. He says that man can't figure out time, even though God has put eternity in man's heart. Even though man wants to figure out what God has done in the past and what God is going to do in the future, it's difficult, maybe even impossible, according to the preacher. And here he says the reason God has made it so difficult, the reason God has made man incapable of figuring out the time is so that people will fear him. According to this view of God, the preacher seems to believe that God should be feared because he's made time unpredictable. He's maybe even made himself unpredictable, hard to discern. Is man even capable of knowing who God is at all? And according to the preacher, that's what makes God scary. What makes God worthy of our fear. Let's move on to chapter 5, another passage about the fear of God. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In chapter five, the preacher gives a concrete example of what the fear of God should look like specifically in the context of worship. Verse two of chapter five harkens back to what we just read about in chapter three. This idea that God is in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, there is a distance between us and God. There is a divide. And according to the preacher, that's one of the reasons to fear him. That again, he's unknowable. He's so utterly different and so utterly removed from us that we can't even begin to claim that we understand him the same way we can't understand time. We're starting to see something about the preacher's view of God. We'll get to that here in just a second. But specifically, he says that people should be very careful in their worship about how they speak to God. After all, when God is distant, when God is removed, when God is basically unknowable, what are we supposed to say to him? How do we speak with him? And according to the preacher, you use as few words as needed. He focuses even more on the concept of making vows to God, making oaths to God. And his advice is relatively simple. If you make a vow, fulfill it. If you can't fulfill it, don't make it in the first place. And if you back out of a vow that you've made and you don't fulfill the vow, God will punish you. That's how the preacher views God we're starting to see why the preacher says we should fear him. He's distant. He's removed. He's impossible to understand. And according to this view, he's even harsh and bitter when it comes to our words. Now, there's another man in the Old Testament who would probably agree with what the preacher has to say about God, especially when it comes to vows and oaths. For that, turn to Judges chapter 11. One of the most horrifying stories in Scripture and one of the most disturbing books of Scripture. The story of Jephthah. Chapter 11, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Jephthah is the warrior. The Israelites appoint to deliver them from their enemies. And Jephthah so desperately wants to succeed in this that he makes a vow He says, God, if you help me win the battle, if you help me defeat the Ammonites, I'll sacrifice the first thing I see when I get home. But tragically, after the battle is won, Jephthah's daughter is the one who walks out of the house, ironically celebrating her father's victory, not knowing what's coming. Now, one would think that a person who fears God would not sacrifice their child. And yet that's exactly what Jephthah does. He gives his daughter some time to mourn, some time to spend with her friends, but then he goes through with the vow. He fulfills the oath. Now here's the thing. Jephthah should have known that God hates child sacrifice. God hates it. Under no circumstances would God condone the sacrifice of his daughter. And yet Jephthah fears God because he believes he's harsh, he believes he's bitter, he believes he's ruthless. And he, like the preacher, believes that he must fulfill his vow. But if Jephthah really knew the character of God, if Jephthah really knew who God was and what God desired of his people, Do you think he would have gone through with his vow? No. He would have repented of his rash words. He would have not followed through on the vow. And he would have thrown himself on the mercy of God. What we see in the preacher and what we see in Jephthah so far is that they're giving us a clue into a proper understanding of the fear of God. And the clue is this. If we don't understand God's character, if we don't know who God is, if we don't grasp what God expects of His people, we cannot properly fear Him. If we don't know who God is in the first place, we will not have a healthy fear of Him. Because if we believe that God is unknowable and distant, like the preacher, If we believe that God is harsh and cruel and bitter like Jephthah, we can still fear him, but it won't be a healthy fear. If we have that kind of fear of God, we may one day find ourselves hating him because that is not the God of the Bible. Why would we ever worship a God who commands people to sacrifice their children just because they made a vow? Jephthah and the preacher don't understand who God is. And the only way that we can appropriately fear God is if we know who he really is. Let's move to chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, the third passage on the fear of God. Chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is the passage where the preacher really starts to show his confusion about who God is. He channels his inner Billy Joel and complains that only the good die young, while the wicked live long and prosperous lives. And for the preacher, that is a source of frustration. That is a source of anger. And so as he looks at the wicked living these long lives and the righteous dying in their righteousness, the best advice that he can come up with? Find the middle road. Be not overly righteous. Be not overly wicked. Try to fall somewhere in between. Well, that shows us yet again that the preacher has a faulty understanding of who God is and what God expects of man. The preacher should have known Leviticus chapter 19, verse two, that God expects his people to be holy as he is holy. And someone who is striving to obey Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, they don't say things like that. They don't tell people to just be a little righteous. Try to be a little bit wicked because you don't want to be too righteous. Try and find something right in the middle. Try and find the sweet spot of righteous and wicked. Someone who knows God and is striving to obey Leviticus 19, chapter 2, doesn't sacrifice their child in the name of keeping a rash vow. Men like Jephthah and the preacher, they have some idea of what it means to fear God. But quite frankly, it's not a good idea. Why? Because again, they have a mixed up at best view of who God is in the first place. And if you don't know the true character of God, We cannot properly fear him. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 8. The last passage in Ecclesiastes about the fear of God from the preacher. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Yet another complaint, the evil flourish, just like the last complaint. He says the wicked are buried with honor. Their lives are celebrated. People throw parades in the city where they committed their evil and wicked deeds. And again, the preacher is angry about that. But then he gets even more confusing. In these verses, he says that those who fear God will do well. And those who don't fear God will not do well. But the reason that seems to be a little bit confusing is that when you really think about it, that appears to contradict almost everything he's said so far. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he hasn't really had a whole lot of patience for life after death. He doesn't really seem to grasp that concept. He says that we're all returning to dust, we're going to Sheol, there is no wisdom, there is no knowledge, there is no pleasure. And yet here he seems to be talking about judgment. Earlier in the book, he said that we shouldn't strive to be overly righteous. Try and find that middle road. But now he says that the righteous will be rewarded. What's the deal with that? And here he says the days of the wicked will not be prolonged. But just a few verses ago, he complained that the days of the wicked are prolonged. What is the deal with the preacher? What's he trying to get at? Well, quite frankly, it's yet another example, time and time and time again, of the preacher knowing the importance of fearing God in some capacity, and yet all the while not really knowing Him. Is God just or is He unjust? Is God distant or is He not distant? Does He reward the righteous or not? Does He punish the wicked? Or are not. The preacher doesn't appear to really know. Now, as we try to find a healthy understanding of the fear of God, where does that leave us? Well, truth be told, we can't stay with the preacher as we try to understand what it means to fear our God. Because if we stay with the preacher, we will have a foggy understanding of who God is and a false understanding Of how and why we should fear him. But thankfully, as we've seen throughout this entire sermon series, we have the entirety of the Bible to help make sense of Ecclesiastes. We can read backwards and we can see moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where there are questions, there are doubts, there are holes. And yet Christ helps us fill those holes and resolve those doubts. And answer those questions. Now, some of the questions the preacher had. Let's revisit those. Is God unknowable and distant? No. If we read the rest of the Bible, we worship a God who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. A God who called Abraham by name. A God who gave Moses his law. A God who made the promise of an everlasting kingdom To David, a God who heard the cries of his people in Babylon as they were mocked next to the river. But even more amazing than those things, we worship a God who became man. We worship a God who sent his son to touch lepers and to eat with sinners. Does that sound like a God who's distant and unknowable? Not at all. We worship a God who came here. Another big question the preacher had. Is God really that harsh and bitter and cruel and unforgiving when it comes to our words? No, he isn't. That being said, when Jesus talks about our words, he does tell us to be humble. Jesus would agree that our mouths certainly can lead us into sin. He speaks against the concept of oaths entirely, saying that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Maybe there is some wisdom to what the preacher has to get at, to approaching God with a little bit more reverence, approaching God with a little bit more humility. Maybe there is some wisdom there. But we also worship a God who isn't strict and isn't cruel and isn't bitter and jaded when it comes to our words. If that were true, none of us would have a chance. And on top of that, as we look at the words of Jesus, we see that even he knows a thing or two about rash oaths and unwise vows. Look at Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 9, an interesting passage where Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, a passage that many people have been confused about for quite some time. But maybe we can figure something out about it this morning. Chapter seven, verse nine, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban—that that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. As we read these verses, picture a young man who makes a rash oath, a rash vow out of anger towards his parents, mom and dad and the son get in a fight. And so the son commits everything he has to God, my time, my resources, my energy for the rest of my life. I'm going to give it all to God instead of mom and dad. But he doesn't make that oath or that vow because he loves God. He makes that vow because he wants to get revenge on mom and dad. But then some time passes. The young man thinks about it a little bit more. Cooler heads prevail and he wants to take that vow back. Because he, unlike Jephthah, he knows the heart of God and what God expects of his people. That they honor their father and mother. So the young man goes back to the temple with his tail between his legs, desiring to take the vow back. But then what do the Pharisees say? They would agree with the preacher. They would agree with Jephthah. Keep the vow. Keep the oath. Do what you said you were going to do, even if it means you sin by dishonoring your parents. The same way Jephthah kept his vow, even if it meant he committed grievous sin by sacrificing his children. The Pharisees have this cruel and bitter and harsh view of God. That's why they fear him. But then Jesus rebukes them, quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. You can honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. With people like Jephthah, with people like the Pharisees, we see those who can keep their vows and can keep their oaths, can stick to their word. But if they don't know God, they don't properly fear him, no matter how many vows they keep. So what about the future? Another question the preacher seems to be wrestling with is what will happen in the future? Will the righteous be rewarded? Will the wicked be judged? He seems to be confused. Well, do we have to be confused about the future? Do we really have to believe that God is unknowable? Do we really have to believe that God hasn't revealed himself to us and that we have nothing to look forward to? No. He's told us exactly what we can look forward to. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, one of the most well-known passages about the fear of God, starting in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John says that we don't have to fear the day of judgment. We don't have to be scared of the day of judgment. We can wait for that day. We can wait for that moment with confidence because of what Christ has done for us, because Christ was righteous, because Christ died on the cross. Because Christ took our penalty. Because Christ rose from the grave. John says we don't have to fear the day of judgment because we love God. And because God loves us. And because his son died for us. So, what we see in these passages are answers to the question of whether or not we should fear God. Well, we shouldn't fear God for the reasons the preacher gives. The preacher says we should fear God because he's distant and unknowable. Well, he isn't. The preacher says we should fear God because he's harsh and bitter and cruel with our vows. But he isn't. The preacher says we should fear God because God punishes people. And yet John tells us that we will have confidence at the day of judgment. So why should we fear him? Is there any room for the fear of God at all? We'll consider Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28. The last passage we'll look at this morning. Some of Jesus's most straightforward words about the fear of God. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Right after Jesus tells his disciples not to fear the men who will persecute them, he tells them to fear this frightening God who can send them to hell. But then right after giving this frightening image of God who can throw people into hell for eternity, he then paints a very different picture of God right there. At that point is when he starts calling God their father. He says that God knows the number of hair on their heads. He says that this God you are called to fear cares for even the smallest bird. The same God who is so righteous and holy and powerful and fearsome is the same God who loved you enough to send his son to a cross. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who loves me. So do Christians fear God? Yes, we do. Not because he's distant, not because he's bitter or cruel, not because he's unjust, not because he's unpredictable. We fear God because we love him. We fear God because he loves us. We fear him because he was willing to go to the radical measure of sending his only begotten son to display the love he has for sinners like you and me. That kind of fear of God, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. And when we understand the God we worship, and when we understand what it means to fear him, we can take Jesus' words seriously. Fear not, because there's nothing else in this world to be afraid of. Let's pray. Father, talking about what it means to fear you is intimidating, it's humbling. And as Joshua mentioned earlier, sometimes it's even hard to wrap our minds around how we can fear you so much and love you so much at the same time. It's hard to wrap our minds around how you can be so holy and righteous and just and yet also so gracious and merciful and patient. And God, there may be some truth to the idea that in this life, we may never fully understand how all those things work together. But your word does tell us that you are to be feared, but that you love us more than we could ever imagine. Thank you that you care for us more than sparrows. Thank you that you care for us to the point of knowing how many hairs are on our heads. Thank you that you care for us even when persecution comes our way as Jesus predicted. Thank you that you care for us even though we don't deserve it. God, give us hearts that love you and hearts that fear you. Give us hearts that obey you, hearts that worship you. Give us minds that understand who you are, who you really are, not just by coming up with images in our minds, but by reading your word, looking at the cross, relying on the guidance of your spirit. God, thank you that you loved us enough and hated sin enough to send Jesus. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you, we fear you. We ask all these things humbly in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.